Good morning, Grace. Good morning, Grace on the patio. Good morning, Grace at home. We're glad to have all of you. I'm sure I'm not the only one whose heart is heavy from just what's going on around the world today. So let's, let's open praying for that, as well as praying that the Lord will help us to focus on God's Word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, as the news has poured in, particularly from Afghanistan, of uh, the needs of your people, and just people generally, obviously, God, we pray that you will comfort, and we pray that you will... Uh, be at work um, in ways that we can't understand. In fact, this is one of those moments I'm, I feel that we don't know what to pray, but we have the Spirit who can turn our groans into something before the throne. And so we're grateful for that, and we pray for peace, um, peace on earth. And in Haiti and in countries where there's civil war, like Ethiopia and uh, so much sin, so much evil, so much need for peace and for the Prince of Peace who we're going to be looking at today to come back and complete the work that was started through the cross and the resurrection. So, oh Lord, come quickly, cause us to uh, take peace in the fact that we follow uh, a conquering Lord even in these times when we don't understand. Give us the spirit now as we open your word. Uh, our task is uh, futile without his help. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we are continuing our trek through Luke. So if you have the Bible with you, hopefully you do. We're going to be looking at Luke starting in chapter 4 and moving into chapter 5, uh, the Big theme of the morning is the miraculous catch of fish, but as we read it and look through it, I think we're going to see that uh, the, the passage is moving quite quickly to uh, uh, the miraculous event of the catch of the fish is there to push us along uh, to something that comes after. So let me read the passage, and then uh, with the Lord's help, we'll jump in. Starting in chapter 4. Verse 42, and we will read through 11 of chapter 5. There are Bibles in the back. If you want to jump up and grab one, feel free to use your phone, however you would like to follow along. And, it would, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to pour, put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he caught the peep and he taught the people. I'm putting my glasses on after two mistakes of reading. He sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. 
They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats. They began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell, fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. When they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. There's one particular part of this passage as I've been sort of immersing myself and meditating on it leading up to this, that it's just, oh, it's just been ringing, just ringing in my head. It's as if it's been ringing in my ears. There, I've, I've had many conversations with many of you who have the same thing that I have. I have some ear ringing. I've had it for almost 10 years now. It's, right, it's basically constant. But my brain, thank the Lord, tunes it out sometimes. But I know what it's like to have something sort of ringing. And this, the last verse of this passage has been ringing in my head all the few weeks that I've been staring at this passage. They brought their boats to the land. They left everything and followed him. And the reason that's ringing probably is, for me at least, it initially asks a question of me. Are you willing to leave everything and follow Jesus? And that's been a haunting question for me. It's, it's, it's actually kept me up a couple of nights of, have I gotten to the point in my mid-40s that I'm so comfortable with the way that I live life that I am no longer capable or willing to leave everything to follow Jesus? And this is accentuated. This very week that the news of this week has made this, this question just ring even more in my ears. The news of Afghanistan. See, I have a friend from seminary that I have lost complete contact with that the last I had heard of him, he had moved to Afghanistan 20-some years ago to be a missionary. And I have no idea he ever made it there, much less if he might still be there. Rob Lister and I were at seminary at the same time, and it was a remarkably memorable chapel where this leader from the IMB came to the seminary, and he did his exegesis, and he did his preaching, and he did his passage, but the altar call was a little different that morning because the altar call, he literally said, I'm here to get 10 of you to go with me to Afghanistan. He was leading a 1040 window. He said, here's what all 10 of you need to be. You've got to be single, You've got to be strong, you've got to be in good health, and you've got to be willing to leave everything and go with me today. That was memorable. In fact, Rob Lister and I are both married. We're both like, oh yeah, I wish I wasn't married. I'd go do that, right? You just sort of have that sort of thing. Like, but it was definitely, it was, you know, it was, it was very nice to be married at that chapel, right? You're just, okay, not called to do that. But I had met this this young guy, super cool guy, for the life of me, I've tried to remember his name and I cannot remember it and it's made me sad, but I didn't know him all that well, but I was a youth pastor at the time and this, this young seminary student, a single guy, had volunteered in my youth ministry and I had sat down with him to sort of, you know, do the, the interview and to place him and he had even said, I'm not even sure why I'm here at seminary, but I know God's called me, God's got something for me and the next Sunday, I think he had only volunteered for a couple of weeks, the next Sunday he shows up and says, this is going to be my last Sunday. I was like, oh, really? Are you having to leave somebody? He's like, I, I responded to, to what Zane said. I'm going to Afghanistan with him. Wow. 
It made it very real to me, like, wow, my sort of fake show of pride and, and fake, uh, here's, here's what I can do and how great I am. I would be willing to leave it all, but good thing I can't because of what he said. And here's this friend, this person I know not very well, who by all accounts went to Afghanistan to ride on a camel from village to village trying to share the gospel and hopefully plant churches 20 years ago. That was very morning. Uh, by God's grace, I got a text from a, a new friend uh, who had just recently gotten a report that his, a ministry partner of his who has people serving in Afghanistan got 350 of their people out today. And we know there's a lot that we're still waiting on. But I told him, I said, thank you for that. I needed that good news. But this has all been ringing in my ears because I thought, is there any chance that my friend is still in Afghanistan? If not, if he ever made it there, it's certainly a good chance that people he shared the gospel with who've accepted the gospel are in grave danger. Certainly the case. And it's made me wonder, would I be willing to do what my friend did? Would I be willing to leave everything and follow him? So I want that to be ringing in all of our ears as we work our way through this passage. Um, and, and we're going to end back up with that exact same question and we're going to, to try to tackle it a little bit more. So let's start at the first. And we're going to move relatively quickly through the text. In my opinion, this text is written in such a way that's driving us to one central point. And we're going to get there relatively quickly. So my apologies now. If, if I don't jump off and ring a bell where the text gives us permission to do so, it's because I don't believe that that's the priority of the text. The priority of the text is to push us towards this conversation between Peter and Jesus. So that's where we're going to run, and that's where we're going to try to let that be what we simmer on, and we're going to try to move there with an intentionality, Lord willing. So in verse 42, we see Jesus going somewhere to a desolate place. Other gospels often talk about Jesus going to pray in a desolate place. Luke doesn't tell us that he's praying, but he does tell us he's going to a desolate place, and then the people or the crowd catch up with him. I always think of the crowd in the gospels as sort of like its own character, Right? The crowd, and often I don't like the crowd. Like when I'm reading the New Testament, when I'm reading the Gospels, the crowd is usually a bad guy, in my opinion. And why is that? It's because I sort of know how the story ends. And at the end of the story, the crowd turns on Jesus, and I don't like that, so I don't tend to have much compassion for the crowd. And even in this passage, oh, the crowd's following Jesus, good for them. The crowd just tried to kill him earlier in the same chapter. So I don't have a lot of compassion for the crowd. And this, is, this passage has challenged me in this because here we have the crowd wanting Jesus, needing Jesus, following him and saying, stay with us, stay with us. And then we have what I take to be some sort of a purpose statement of Jesus for this particular moment. And it comes straight out of uh, the passage that is quoted from the Old Testament in chapter four up in 18 and 19, where he says, no, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. If I was sent to this purpose. He resisted the temptation to allow this crowd of people to feed his ego to the point that he would want to stay with them. Oh, they're, they're, these are people I can shepherd. These are the kind of people that I'm looking for. No, he was willing to resist that and move about to say, no, 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 I know you guys are all in, but the whole point is to preach the gospel elsewhere. 
other towns. That was the purpose that I was sent. And we see already, and we've already seen it in Luke, and we're going to see it in this passage specifically, it's not a tension, it's a sort of both and, that Jesus' ministry has preaching and teaching as well as miraculous signs. And as I started thinking about this, I, I, it, the Lord, I think, helped me to think through, I think some of us enter these sorts of passages tending to sort of gravitate towards one of those two things more than the other. So let's use some extreme cases because none of us are quite there. Thomas Jefferson loved the teaching of Jesus but rejected the miracles. So some of us might be a little bit closer to, I'm really drawn, I love the teaching of Jesus. I love the content. I love, I love what Jesus the teacher has to say. And King Herod wanted Jesus to perform magic tricks but could care less what Jesus had to say. Some of us might be a little bit more drawn that way. I'm kind of more into Jesus, the miraculous, the wondrous Jesus, the amazing Jesus. And what we want to find out right off is that both of these two parts of Jesus's ministry are crucial for his ministry, and both are doing the same thing. They're displaying his authority. We've already seen it in his teaching in the preceding verses, where when Jesus taught and the people say, oh, he teaches with authority. Eric helped us with that. That was very helpful for me last week. And now we're going to see, he's, we've already seen his miraculous events as well. In fact, I'm prone in my negative attitude towards the crowd, I'm prone to think, well, the only reason the crowd wants anything to do with Jesus is because of the miracles. But this passage actually beats that out of my head. Look at verse 5. Kenny already sort of pointed to this on one occasion. While the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. The crowd is hungry for the teaching. The crowd is hungry for what Jesus is preaching. The crowd recognizes they need this news about the gospel. Well, thank you, Lord, for, for helping me correct and to see that I probably, my negativity towards the crowd might even carry into my current day situation. I might be prone to sort of think poorly of big groups of people. Maybe, I'm sure none of you are like that. Maybe I'm the only one that's like that. A little skeptical of people, a little bit, you know, weary. Um, and here we realize, wow, this, this crowd, instead of me thinking, oh, yeah, this isn't real. You guys just tried to kill him. It should be viewed as, wow, what a miraculous event of the work of the word of God in their heart that they have moved from at first wanting to kill Jesus and now crowding around him as if he's a Beatle or an NBA player going from a hotel to the van, right? Crowding, pressing around and wanting to touch him, wanting to, like, to the point that he can't even teach while he's on the shore. The crowd is pressing in around him to hear the word of God. So we move into chapter five. We see the crowd. They're pressing in. There's a problem. The problem is there's so many people around him. He can't even accomplish the teaching that he's going for. So what's the solution? The solution is, hey, here's some boats. Here's some dudes working on their nets. I'm going to get into the boat, push off a little bit, and sit in the boat and teach from the boat, creating a natural amphitheater of his voice bouncing off the water. Great idea. Turns out Jesus is a pretty smart guy, Right? Problem solved. If you're a Thomas Jefferson type, if you're, if you're a type that thinks maybe the primary point of this passage is the teaching of Jesus, you, you lose that pretty quickly in this passage because it tells us that he taught the people, but we don't get anything that he actually taught the people in this passage. 
So the teaching of what he taught, the content, isn't even demonstrated to us here. So what's that move us towards? Well, what it moves us towards is the action and the miraculous activity. When he finishes speaking in verse 4, he says to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. There's a lot going on right here, right? Uh, Simon is a professional fisherman. Simon is good at his job. The carpenter's son is telling Simon where to put the nets. Even worse, really, the preacher is telling him where to fish. I spent the last week trying to think of analogies, professional analogies, those of you who are in work and in sales or accountants or whatever else. And the thing that kept coming back to my mind is that uh, I grew up in a very non-urban, a a rural area of Oklahoma. And once a year, my father would host a, a large pheasant hunt. And my brother and I grew up pheasant hunting all the time. But one of the things that would happen in our church, our little local church, uh, our pastors would come and hunt with us on this one day. And not only that, typically preachers from the city, and in Oklahoma, the city is Oklahoma City, the city of roughly a million total people in the whole metro. So it's, it's like a third the size of Orange County's population. That's our city. But we would have sometimes the pastors of our local church would have friends from, from the city. They'd, I'm saying that very deliberately. They'd come up and they'd hunt with us. And my brother and I would just, we would just make fun of these preachers because they're just, they're, they're fish out of water. And a lot of these people might have even come to our church and spoken at, at, at various occasions or whatever else. And in, in the proper context, the preacher in front of the people doing his work is, is, is a powerful thing. But then you put the preacher on level playing field with you, and he's someone to make fun of. Now, that shows something about my brother and I's personality, and maybe there are some things we should repent of then and retroactively or whatever else. But it was absolutely true. They didn't know what they were doing. And we, it was just, we, we took great glory in the fact that we knew this activity better than these important people. How much more of that would Peter be feeling? Peter's like, I'm a professional fisherman. I've been doing this all night, and now you're telling me where to put the nets down. The preacher's going to tell me how to fish. Now, I'm actually, in the text, we really don't have any reason to think that he has any of that going on in his heart. If anything, from what he says, it seems like that he's having a, a, a very different response. Master, we toiled all night. I'm going to tell you right now, we didn't take anything. Master is, is, is a word saying, I'm going to fall under your submission. I don't think it's sarcasm. But at your word, I will let down the nets. I'm going to obey. I'm going to do what you say. And here we have the miraculous event that the passage is most known for. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. Their nets are breaking. They had to call the other boat over. The other boat is nearly sinking. Fish, professional fishermen fishing all night, catching nothing. The preacher tells them to put their nets down. Miraculously, they catch this huge number of fish. Praise the Lord. What we see here is the passage has transitioned from the teaching and now to the miraculous event, but I still don't think that's the primary point of the passage for a number of reasons. I think the passage is pointing us to the response of Peter and his friends to Jesus. 
That's really the point of the passage. That's really what it's driving towards. The, the teaching and the miraculous event are both pushing us towards this final chunk that we're going to be looking at with a little bit more caution and care than we've looked at the first little bit. Starting in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish they had taken. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. The response of the whole group, it seems like, is the word that we get is astonished. But there must have been some fear mixed in because Jesus' first response is, do not fear. So it's, it's amazing. It's astonishing. It's, it's almost frightening. They, they, they bump into the glory of Jesus. They get a glimpse of Jesus for who he really is. And the response, as it so often is in the New Testament, is not one of, oh, that's cool. And it's not one of, oh, wow, uh, what can we do with this? It's one of fear. Sometimes I think that even, even when I'm thinking about, uh, I, I grew up singing this, this old, I guess it's a chorus, open our eyes, Lord, we want to see Jesus. And you say it over and over again like those old choruses. But it never really dawned on me that it might just be that when I see Jesus, my response is fear. Because if I see him in his glory, if I see him as he is, part of the response, not all of the response, because we're going to see Jesus' compassion. We're going to see Jesus meeting these guys where they're at. But at least a part of it is a reminder of the holiness, the otherworldliness, the entirely differentness of what Jesus is from us. That results in a confession from Peter. Not a confession like, it's not a conversion story and we could try to, try to manipulate the passage to do that with it. But really what it is, is Jesus has this encounter with Peter and Peter's natural response is, depart from me, I am a sinful man. And I don't think what's going on here is merely fishermen are thought of on the social scale as kind of, you know, a little bit closer. They're not quite tax collectors, but they're sort of, they're kind of thought as men of loose morals. I don't think that's what he's confessing. And I don't think he's confessing, oh man, I have these, I have, I have murdered people or I am a professional thief. I don't think that's what he's confessing. I think what he's confessing is a general stance for all of us of compared to you, O oh Lord, I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful person. So we can enter into the same confession with Peter and recognize, yes, yes, we're sinful. And I think this is where the passage is driving, not just Peter's response to the teaching and to the miracle, but then Jesus' response to Peter. And I think it's interesting to note what Jesus doesn't say to Peter, Right? So Jesus doesn't say, oh, now, 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 don't be so hard on yourself. We need, some positive, we need some positive thinking here. Live your best life now, right? We need to make sure that we're positive, positive, positive. I'm seeing some negative aura of energy coming out. We need to bring some crystals in and make sure we bring that back out or something. Like, you don't see any of that from Jesus. You don't see sort of a, oh, now, 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 Peter, you're being too hard on yourself. But you also don't see any sort of... Uh, Shaming. Yeah, yeah, you're a pretty sinful guy, Peter. 
Yeah, in fact, I know exactly what you did last week. In fact, I, I've got a whole book of it. I've got it recorded down. And, I, like, and, and good thing you're coming to me now. You don't see that sort of response from Jesus either. What, what I think we see in the response from Jesus is both compassion, but maybe even as important or more important, at least for this passage, is calling. So it's one thing that Jesus meets him with this compassionate, don't be afraid. Like, I'm, I'm entering into with you. I'm going to recognize what you're saying. But then he calls this sinful man to join him in his ministry. Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. Others of the gospels get, lay down your nets and follow me. How do you see Jesus responding to you when you come to him in those moments, those moments of confession, those moments of brokenness, those moments of intimate revelations of things that are in your heart that you don't, you're scared to take them to Jesus, much less to anyone else. Do you see Jesus responding to you with a scold? Let's be my guess. Most of us would think, yeah, you're right. You are kind of a, you are kind of a piece of trash, but I'm going to forgive you once again. That's not what we, that's not Jesus. And some of us might even say, oh, Jesus is sort of my divine therapist. Oh, don't, don't go negative. Don't talk about your sin. Let's not go there. No, I think what we see is Jesus knows us intimately. He knows our hearts. He knows how broken we are. He knows how much we need him. And instead, we get compassion from Jesus. And then we get called to action. And not in some sort of way that says, hey, earn it. It's more of a, hey, I love you. I accept you because of your place, that you, your faith that you've placed in me. I see you as holy and perfect. Now let's get to work. And that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool that in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of us being damaged and recognizing our damage and our humility, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of humility from Peter's response. In fact, it's sort of uncommon for Peter the rest of the time we know Peter. In fact, the first time we know Peter, but the passage is, is indicating how important this particular text is for Peter because it's one of the few times that it calls him Simon Peter. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw, it's the first time we get both names. So when we get introduced to Peter, we're getting introduced to Peter in a way that he's a little bit different than he is the rest of the time. Peter's the guy who's always saying something. So we've got four high school age kids. We have done a lot of personality tests and what are you going to do in your future and all that kind of stuff. And I learned a new word, at least it was new for me. And one of my four children tested really high on what's called ideation. Ideation means the ability to produce lots and lots and lots of ideas. So someone who's very high on ideation is like, hey, I got an idea. Hey, I got an idea. It's like roadblocks don't come to a person that's high in ideation because the, the, the roadblock was always like, no, I've got an idea. We'll just go over here and we'll do this. And so Peter is high in ideation. Does anyone want to refute that? Peter is high in ideation. At the transfiguration, everyone else is sort of freaked out. Peter's like, hey, I've got an idea. Let's build some stuff. <laughs> right? People are coming to get Jesus. Hey, I have an idea. Let's cut some ears. Right? It's just sort of, he just kind of always, he's always coming up with ideas. Right? There's always, he's, you can just tell. He's just, and that's sort of what makes him 
for me at least, one of the characters I love the most and also kind of the most annoying because he's the most like me in that regard. I'm high in ideation, if you hadn't picked up on that. So my child is cursed because of me. I think my wife's quite high. I think we run high in the Oaks family on ideation. So, um, But in this case, you don't see Peter's high ideation. What do you see? You see Peter's humiliation. Peter being humbled, Peter being speechless, Peter saying, I don't know what to do with this. Get away from me. I don't deserve to be a part of you. And that's met with compassion and it's met with calling. Hey, Peter, join me. The salary is not too good, but I want you to hang out with me. I want you to come and be the central person in my life, in my ministry. An incredible blessing, an incredible calling. And that's the passage that's been ringing in my ears. When they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. It's exactly what they did. They were willing to do it. It struck me. They woke up that morning thinking only about how many fish they were going to catch. And by the time they went to bed, they weren't even thinking about being fishermen at all. They had a new vocation in 12 hours. 16 hours. And not only that, not only did they wake up thinking about catching fish. I mean, think about just the, the setting of the passage. I am assuming there were other boats on the shore. I am assuming there were other fishermen. For whatever reason, Jesus specifically, supernaturally sought this boat out and Simon Peter out. Jesus fished for Peter. So not only did Peter wake up a fisherman, he woke up a fish. And I'm not, it's kind of funny, but it's also sort of illustrative. That's us. We're just fish. Fish sought, fish caught by the Lord Jesus. And then given a, given a new vocation, given a new calling. The fisherman becomes someone who's going to catch men. The fish becomes someone who's going to catch men. Why? Why would, they, why would they leave everything and follow him? And I think that's the crucial point of the passage. That the crucial point of the passage is this experience with Jesus that changes everything about their life. This encounter with Jesus. So let's return to our ringing question. These guys left everything and followed Jesus. Is, is that what I should do, Lord? Is, is, should I end the sermon by sort of laying on the guilt and laying it on heavily that all of us should be willing to sell our homes and sell our cars and do everything we can to go to Afghanistan or wherever else to follow Jesus? And while I don't want to remove the sting of that. That's actually why I want that ringing part of this text to ring a little bit. I do think that there's something to be said to it, but I do think that too often our systematic theology will give us permission to say, well, no, we don't have to do that because da 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 And we don't sort of get the sting of some of these passages. And I think we're supposed to feel a little bit of it before we just sort of intellectually, cognitively give an excuse for why we might not be called to give up a lot. 
So I, want, I wanted to settle a little bit. And, and here's, how I, here's how I feel like the Lord is, has, has led me to help us think this through, this question. What am I to do? Because that's what I'm thinking. And I'm guessing that's what you're thinking too. They left everything and followed him. What about me? So instead of, what we want to do is a little bit of what we call biblical theology. We want to think, what does the Bible say about this more generally than just this text? And there's a lot of ways we could do that. We could go to the Old Testament. We could go to, but in, in, in biblical theology, what you want to do is you want to start kind of, you, you take the, the lens out just a little bit wider. So let's just think about not even just the Gospels. Let's think about the Gospel of Luke exclusively. And here's what we find in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to point you to some of these and think about these. Not every person who has an encounter with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke leaves everything to follow him. As soon as I say it, we all know that it's true. But let's think about it a little bit more. The very next passage, if your Bibles are already open, Jesus cleanses a leper. The guy says, hey, if you will, you can clean me. Jesus says, I will be clean. And then Jesus charges him to tell no one and then says this, go and show yourself to the priest, make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded it of proof to them. It doesn't seem, at least what we get in the text, that Jesus says, hey, you, 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 you're supposed to be a fisher of men as well. It seems like there's a different calling for this leper than there is for the fisherman. And I think even more helpfully, following close along, we have, we have two tax collectors in this book, both with very different callings, commands from Jesus. The first is Levi, verse 27, later on. Levi's collecting taxes. Jesus walks up, follow me. It's the same call to the fisherman. Leave everything, come with me. But later in the book, we have a very different charge to a different tax collector, Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? There's a lot of parallels to the two tax collector stories. The first is neither of them are doing much to attract the attention of Jesus, given that, I mean, Zacchaeus is in a tree, but there's just all the people are climbing around. The crowd is trying to get to the point that Zacchaeus has to climb a tree. In both cases, Jesus fishes for this tax collector. In both cases, the tax collector responds to this encounter with Jesus. In one occasion, Levi gives up everything to follow Jesus. In the other occasion, what does Zacchaeus say? Half of what I give, I'm going to give to the poor. And anyone else that I have defrauded, I'm going to pay them back. Does Jesus say, eh, that's pretty good, Zacchaeus, but see, leave the high over there. He gave up everything. You're 50% as good as Levi. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, today's salvation has come. Different calling by the master. And isn't the master the one who gets to assign the calling? The master is the one who tells us where to go and what to do. And perhaps the story that helps with this the most is the story of the man who once has the legion of demons. Remember this guy? We're going to see him in a couple of chapters. He's out of his mind with demons. Jesus casts the demons out. He's then sane. Let's just flip over because I've missed this for a long time and this caught me a couple of years back. This is in chapter 8. And in 38 and 39, you have this being said about the man from whom the demons had gone. Verse 38, chapter 8, if you want to glance at it. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Isn't that interesting? The man who had had the demons wanted to 
give up everything and follow Jesus in the exact same way that the disciples had given up everything and followed Jesus. And what's the master say? The master says, no, 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 different calling for you. I'm the master, I assign the calling, you're calling, go back home. You cannot, you cannot understand why the presence of this man who had been uh, out of his mind with demons now walking around the town. And we'll, we'll get to that passage. But the primary point being that not every single person who has this encounter with Jesus is called to give up everything and follow him in the exact same way. And I think that that's what helps us with the point of the passage. The point of the passage is not to compare our callings oh, you were called to this and I was only called to this or, oh, he got to go to Afghanistan or had to go to Afghanistan, whatever it was and, and I just was called to continue my studies or whatever else. I think the point of the passage is not to f- compare our callings but the point of the passage is to focus on that encounter with Jesus. Encounter Jesus. Encounter Jesus today. Think about reminding yourself of the encounters you've had with Jesus in the past. Think about Peter's encounter with Jesus. Does it end here in chapter five? No, the rest of the gospels are a continual story of Jesus, Peter's continuing education of his encountering with Jesus. And then I love reading first and second Peter because here you have old Peter, more mature Peter, less brash Peter, a a life of encountering Jesus. And that's what we need to be focusing on, the encountering of Jesus in our own lives and in our own ministries, in our own experiences. And from there, we hope to see what the master has us called to do. Now, I could say something about that, but I don't feel the need to because I think the point of the passage is not so much follow their calling. The point of the passage is to help us recognize Here's the way it typically works. Encounter with Jesus, met with humility and confession, followed by Jesus' response of compassion and calling, followed by our action. So focus on your encounter with Jesus and then focus on responding appropriately. There are plenty of people that have encounters with Jesus throughout the Gospels who don't respond appropriately to Jesus or they don't follow up with action. They walk away sad. So what are we to do? We're to focus on our encounter with Jesus, both as we followed him, as we believed him for the first time for the, for the forgiveness of our sins, and then we, we respond with humility. We respond with confession. This is what Sundays are all about, right? This is what our, our, our quiet time, this is what our, our personal devotional life should be about, is, is encountering Jesus through his word, responding appropriately in humility and in confession, receiving his care to us from his compassion, and then taking action on the calling that he has for us. So at one point I had, uh, I used to teach a class on how to determine your vacation, vocation and calling. And I had a couple of points on that. And I thought, no, I don't really think that's the point. I think the point of the passage, I think what the Spirit wants us to do is to, to go push ourselves up. Think about the encountering of Jesus. Are you doing things in your life regularly today? Do you have plans to do things in your life tomorrow to encounter Jesus? Do you have a habit of doing something in your life to to facilitate a humble and response of confession to those encounters with Jesus? And are you willing to receive? This this is the, the, the waterfall, I think, often can get blocked right here, right? 
Maybe I'm even, maybe I'm, I'm incredibly humble. I'm incredibly needy. I am incredibly full of confession, but I really just can't accept his care for me. I just can't accept his compassion. Well, I'm not believing the gospel if that's the case. I'm not recognizing that the master is the one who sets the stage for the calling. The master is the one who's ministering to you. That I feel like somehow I'm such a special case that his care and compassion does not work for me. Now, we should not do that. And then ultimately, to take action. So obviously, as we end, we want to apply the passage by placing our faith in Jesus The calling is not merely a vocation, right? The calling is called. We are called to believe in the Lord Jesus. If there's anyone here who hasn't done that, there's anyone here who does not know Jesus, your calling is very clear. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust in him. Place your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins. If you want to talk about that, there'll be people up here to pray. I will be around. There's almost anyone that you're sitting by would love to talk to you about that. And the calling doesn't just stop there. Our life is a continual climbing through the various callings and responding to those as Jesus would have. And maybe that's what you need to ask for prayer for. Helping have someone pray for you to ask you to discern what is the calling of your life now? How is Jesus asking to respond today, tomorrow, with the challenges that are ahead, whatever those might be?